I'd said in, in some previous conversations, uh, we acted very quickly. We didn't have an organized game plan uh, to deal with the uh, early voting. And we had some problems, which because of the work of the clerk's office, but also because of the work of so many other city agencies that brought in backup support when it was necessary, we had a, a very successful election in regards to participation. So let me give you some figures. In 2012, uh, we had 150,437 voters here in, in Madison. In Milwaukee, there were 288,459. So there were approximately 138,000 more voters in the city of Milwaukee than in Madison. In this election, we had 4,000 more voters in 2016 than we did in 2012. Milwaukee saw a decline of 40,000 voters. So, our percentage of eligible voters remained the same at 79-80%. Milwaukee uh, dropped down below 75%. But the, the critical point here is that all the efforts to suppress the vote, whether we're talking about voter ID, whether we're talking about uh, previous restrictions in terms of the hours that a city clerk's office could be open, we were able to overcome those. Now we're going to go back and we're going to do a post-mortem uh, so we can be better prepared in future elections. Uh, in this instance, it came upon us quickly because of the federal court decision. We're also hoping that we can provide a model for the city of Milwaukee and for other communities so that they can get the kind of participation, the kind of get-out-the-vote that... Uh, we saw here here in, in, in Madison. So again, I, I just want to make the, the, the point that it was a, a, a very successful, very valiant effort on the part of just everyone involved. City clerk's office, the public library staff, uh, other city agencies. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of, of what I'm talking about that didn't surface. Uh, we had thousands of absentee ballots arriving uh, on a daily basis. And as we approached Tuesday's election, uh, we had well over 5,000 ballots that had not been uh, um, processed so that they could then be taken to their polling places and and counted on election day. And the clerk's office was just overwhelmed. So a number of city agencies, particularly the assessor's office, provided staff backup. And on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, we got all those ballots prepared so that they could hit the ground running on Tuesday and get them counted. 
but one of the things that we feared and I didn't want to have happen was for the polls to close on Tuesday and have thousands of absentee ballots uh, still not processed and accounted. That would not have, very frankly, looked good uh, from from a, a uh, standpoint of a fair election. But but more importantly, uh, we wanted to get accurate and prompt results. There were several other times during the, the week, two weeks leading up to Election Day, where we again had to bring in city staff, uh, Katie Crawley from, from our office, uh, who was doing clerical work, uh, along with others in terms of just processing the, uh, the absentee ballots that were coming in. So, again, we had great participation, great turnout, and uh, we hope that this can serve as a model for other communities around the state uh, that were basically impeded by some of the efforts to uh, thwart the civic uh, rights of, of Wisconsinites in terms of participating in the ballot box. All right, turnout here was 154,100, which is up from 150,437 four years ago. So it's an increase of almost 4,000 more voters participating. In Milwaukee, it was a decline from 288,400 to 248,000, a decline of 40,000 voters. Now, if you also look at it another way, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you also look at the population of the two cities in 2012 and 2016, you also see uh, another way of measuring that very high level of participation. Uh, so on another matter some of you asked would I answer questions about the budget and let me just say that um, I've did we make copies here for the press of my email of my little I don't see it in front of anybody so I'm thinking maybe they don't have it um, so anyway, did you, did you get a sheet like this from us? No, they didn't. All right, can you take yours and print it out? And we'll, they have to see the amendments. No, they don't need to see the amendments. They only need to know what my position is. <laughs> so anyway, we've prepared a sheet. It's got uh, one of three words after the number for each amendment. And those answers are yes, no, or depends. Or, or I should say um, maybe. Yes, no, or maybe. And uh, if yes is behind the number of the amendment, it means I support it. I have no problem with the amendment. No obviously means no. And maybe uh, is, is a statement that I have to look at the budget in its entirety 
to see how all the other uh, actions have have uh, concluded is to figure out whether or not, for example, this adds too much in terms of spending, uh, things of that sort. Um, it's very obvious some of these amendments uh, are uh, Tea Party style politics, which are simply designed to punish the executive branch and to take it out on me because of disputes, ongoing disputes that I've had with with some members of the city council. It's also evident that some of these are uh, grandstanding amendments which are designed to cover the butt, which are designed uh, for showmanship, and uh, that that's not going to be tolerated. So with that, I'll be glad to take any questions. Can we talk a little bit more about the election? Um, this was a presidential year. Yes. Statewide in Wisconsin, it's always good for Democrats. Yes. Democrats do poorly in off, so-called off-year elections, like when Walker was elected in 2010. Statewide, the Democrats lost ground in the Assembly and in the Senate in a year that should have been a great year for the Democrats. Is there something wrong with Wisconsin Democratic Party? Is this is this a party that's a, that, that's you know in trouble here? How do you explain yes. how do you explain that the only support for the Democrats are basically Milwaukee County and Dane County and and the good people in Bayfield and and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and one other? No, county. it's it's. Did you have a chance to read my Waxing America piece? No. Okay, I posted something yesterday on my old. Uh, my old blog, Waxing America. Um, I think what you said is true nationally, and that's part of it, is that Wisconsin has been tied into failed democratic politics nationally, but we've managed to do a lot of it on our own. And I've been saying this for, for decades when Democrats start acting like Republicans, they lose. They lose for two reasons. They fail the people who believe in them. And secondly, since they uh, are only half-hearted in their commitment, the voters know that. Um <coughs> Let's, let's talk nationally for a moment. 1973 was my first term as mayor. In that term, I learned two lessons. The first lesson is you never attack the voters. That was evident in the infamous Bill Dyke decent people remark, where he said he hoped that there were enough decent people to reelect him. And no matter what you think of your political opponent, you do not attack and disparage your opponent's uh, supporters because in the process you paint a brush over a whole lot of people. And so the basket of deplorables remark was a total disaster. 
um, Donald Trump couldn't have scripted it better for Hillary Clinton. The second rule uh, that, that needs to be acknowledged in, in politics, besides not attacking the, the voters, uh, is that you have to play to your strength. When it comes down to the end of an election, you go to your supporters. And both candidates did that, going and playing to those key states that uh, we saw crisscrossing the last two weeks, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and, and so on. But Hillary Clinton did not come to Wisconsin. It was always surrogates. Um, and I wonder how much of that is about Hillary Clinton as a presidential candidate. But I also have to wonder how much of it is the Wisconsin Democratic Party. Um, what were they telling the Clinton campaign about what was going on in our state. That, that to me, was, was, was a very uh, uh, critical moment, shall we say, uh, whatever moment, it, whatever time period. But, I mean, to have not come to Wisconsin between April and Election Day, between the primary and, and Election Day, tells me that they either were so cocky and so arrogant about this state or that they had written it off long ago. Let's, let's just take a minute here while, uh, while Katie hands that out. Another rule in, in politics, we'll come back to the, the budget stuff when you want to. Another rule in politics is that, is that you don't state one position in public and another position in private. Talk about a matter of trust. Um, I was given advice by one of those old, hardened... Uh, Newspaper men that we see images of in the newspaper, you know, in the movies and 
such back in 1973, a guy named Owen Coyle. And Coyle said to me, never say anything to anyone unless you're prepared to see it in the newspaper the next day. There has to be one truthful message on the issues. And if that was true in 1973 or 1972, in 2016, where everyone has a recording device with them, that not only records sound, but records video, it's more true today. And to think you could do that in this day and age and get away with it is the kind of arrogance, the kind of hubris that maybe you would only see in regards to trying to cover up your emails. Now, let me just say something personally about my situation. Long before I became mayor, I had my own private email account. Whenever anyone who has access to that address, old friends, whatever, sends me something related to the city, I immediately forward that into my city email account. I did it just this week where somebody sent me a question about the city budget so that there is a public record of it. It's in the public domain, and there is no question about who I serve or what I'm doing. And it is from my city email that I answer them. Uh, One thing I'd suggest for those of you who are interested, and this is sort of a taking it to another level. If you're really interested in, in this subject, in the October 31st issue of The New Yorker, there's an article, um, there's an article uh, by a guy, what's his last name? Um, let me just look it up quickly here. Um, yes. There's an article by George Packer about the Clinton campaign. And I read it on Wednesday morning. Now, this was an article written three weeks ago. And Packer's article, when you read it now after the election, you would think that he wrote the article after the results came in and predicting, or excuse me, explaining why Hillary Clinton lost. And what's in that article is a problem of Hillary Clinton's, and it's a problem of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. My oldest daughter sent me an email or a text message early in the evening on Tuesday when it was evident even in Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania that there were major problems. And she asked me, why do Americans, why do American men hate women? That's how she was reading the election. And I sent her a series of text messages back. I said to her, first of all, they don't hate all women. They mostly hate Hillary Clinton. And secondly, 
Secondly, it's not men. Those folks voting for Donald Trump include women. They include African Americans. They include Latinos. And this gets to the essence of it about people wanting change and sick and tired of hypocrisy. Sick and tired of being abandoned. Both parties, the Republican and the Democratic Party, for 35 years have been pandering to working Americans. And both of them have been fooling working Americans for 35 years with no real programs and no real commitment to those working Americans, regardless of their gender, regardless of the color of their skin, their ethnic or racial background. It's the greatest fraud of our lifetime, maybe only eclipsed by the lies of the Vietnam War and some other wars. But in terms of domestic policy, it is a great fraud. Now, for Republicans to do that to working people is a sham. It's something we're all prepared for. We know that their job is committed to the 1%. Cut taxes. Don't invest in human capacity. Don't invest in public education. But for Democrats to do it, it is a true betrayal. And that's why angry people of all races, genders, took it out on the Democrats around the country and here in Wisconsin. It's a failed policy. It's represented in so many different ways. It's the fact that the Democratic Party in this state can't pull viable candidates to run for the Assembly and for the Senate. And what that does is then diminishes the value in those districts in terms of statewide elections. You basically concede the ground. And so they concede, 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 and pull back and pull back and have less influence in more parts of the state. Um, I'm a firm supporter of, I was a firm supporter of Jim Doyle in both of, both of his elections, his two terms as governor. But the day he made the commitment not to raise taxes, he abandoned the Democratic Party. And then the last two years when the Democrats had the Assembly and the Senate in the state, as well as the governor's office, and they failed to do a damn thing, the people of this state knew it. And one of the worst things a politician can do is not be what they promised they were. The worst thing a politician can do is either betray or switch their beliefs. And again, for Republicans not to do great things for working people, that's expected. I mean, they crush unions. They don't care about minimum wages. But for Democrats to fail to do those things, that is extremely costly in terms of credibility 
with the public. And this election was about credibility. Let me, let me ask you this, and that is, by any measure, Russ Feingold was, is a progressive Democrat. Yes. And by most objective standards, Ron Johnson was a very vulnerable incumbent that he had very little, astonishingly little name recognition in this state. Yet, when push came to shove, freaking Ron Johnson won again, and Russ Feingold, Russ Feingold got, got killed. Right. This, election in this election, in terms of the perception of the people, had nothing to do with parties. It had to be a perception as to whether or not you were a change agent and whether or not you were going to kick ass, kick the asses of everyone who's lied to you over the years. That's what this election was about. So Ron Johnson came across more as a change agent than here's, here's, here's the great irony of the election. This is the great irony of it. Here in Wisconsin, we're one of the worst hit states in terms of the loss of manufacturing and great jobs which is principally, as is the case in Kansas, the fault of the governors, Scott Walker and Brownback. So we got a lot of angry people in this state who are saying, my $50,000, $60,000 a year job with health insurance and retirement benefits is gone. Now, if I'm lucky, I can get 30 hours a week at Walmart and food stamps. I've lost my house. I'm driving a beater of an automobile. And despite the fact that Scott Walker is responsible for that problem more than anyone else in the state of Wisconsin, the voters heard one voice in this election. One voice that said, I'm going to get even for you, for the people who screwed you. And that was Donald Trump. And unfortunately, it was not Hillary Clinton, and it wasn't Russ Feingold. That was not the voice that they heard. Now, the Democrats did have somebody six months ago who was saying all of those populist messages and doing it in a fashion that was sensible and not racist and not exploited, and that was Bernie Sanders. But once Bernie Sanders was out of the picture, Hillary Clinton simply picked up one or two of his messages. She didn't take them to heart. And she didn't connect the dots. She couldn't. She couldn't go and, and go beyond saying that she would oppose uh, the Trans-Pacific Treaty. She couldn't go back to NAFTA. And, 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 and as I said in my blog post, um, her first disastrous step to losing this election goes back to the early 1990s when Bill Clinton 
railroaded the Democratic Party into adopting NAFTA. But Donald Trump's position on that was very clear. You got 10,000 jobs that were lost in the auto industry here in this part of the state. The big decline began in the early 1980s with the Reagan recession. That's when the Rust Belt set in. It's not as though it started with, 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 with Bill Clinton. Doesn't matter. It's perception. It's the same. It, it, it's just what I just said. People have Scott Walker to blame in this state, but they didn't hold that against the Republican Party. It was all about Donald Trump and his message. Don't. All right, so this is this is something that I don't know if I can find my email on this. I wrote to a friend yesterday. Oh, how can I find it? One second. Let me just, is it in these papers or not? It is. I want to read your quote. Um, this is from something that was not published, uh, so he, hopefully he won't be angry with me um, in referring to it. So the New York Times had 25 fact-checkers. The Washington Post had dozens. Um, there were fact-checkers all over the place. So he quotes Trump's one-time ghostwriter, Tony Schwartz, who told Jane Meyer, More than anyone else I've ever met, Trump has the ability to convince himself that whatever he is saying at any given moment is true, sort of true, or at least ought to be true. This is the most profound statement that explains America today. The ability to convince himself that whatever he is saying at any given moment is true, or sort of true, or at least ought to be true. Now think about it. Global warming. It's not true. Or at least it ought not to be true. Evolution. So we got. We'll say we'll, we'll just say for sake of argument, it's a fifty-fifty split in this country. So we got half of the people in this country looking for science and facts and data and truth based on facts, and we got another half of the country that's saying. Uh, truth is what I want it to be. And, and, Donald, and Don, Don, Donald Trump gave... Wait, just let me finish this point. So Donald Trump told people what they wanted to know, what ought to be true about the economy, about their loss of jobs. And here's the thing, for those of you who... Because when I came to realize what was going on, I felt like I was in an old um, Twilight Zone TV story 
uh, about being trapped in this, this, this bizarre new reality. So half the people of this country are arguing with the other half and saying, here's the facts. Here's what the fact finders have. Here's the truth. This is what the real data says. And folks, that doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything. Because half of us are operating on the assumption of what we believe ought to be true. So you're wasting your time. The secret to life these days in this country with the new media, with the Internet, I, I read it on the Internet. It has to be true. And that, when you start talking to me about data from the 1980s and where the loss of jobs came, you're being logical. You're being rational. No. That's not what the discussion's about. Not at all. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, it's, yeah, I just like, if I'm somebody sitting in Richland Center or Dodgeville or Boscobel and I hear that, I hear you saying, you guys don't even believe in science, which isn't that exactly kind of what got us here, where half of the people are telling the other half, you're a bunch of racists who don't believe in science? So let me, tra- let me, let me, let me take the transition. So we've already had discussions in this country about evolution, about global warming. Well, the same debate on those subjects translates into how the economy works and why people don't have jobs and why their lives are miserable. And just as you cannot have a logical discussion about global warming... It's not, it's, it's not possible to have a logical discussion about the economy. It's what people believe that's important. And what they believe, they didn't vote for, for, for Donald Trump because he's going to get them jobs. The kind of jobs we had in this nation 40 and 30 years ago. They voted for him because he is going to get even with the people who destroyed those jobs. That's what it was all about. You had to be credible in terms of getting even with the people who destroyed those jobs. So, going back to my daughter's question, and remember, everything we do in life is balancing values. So if you're a woman, and you're looking at all the misogynist things that he has said during his lifetime, not just in his campaign, and you are looking at the plight of your family and the economic condition and misery that you've experienced over the last 20 years and you look forward to the next 20 years, you are going to pick that economic condition as the most important value for you. It's more important than any nasty thing he's ever said. And they voted for Donald Trump. And it was women, it was African Americans, it was Latinos, it included gays, it included all these people, not every one of them obviously, but enough of them that he maligned. And on the other hand, if you look at the turnout comparisons for Barack Obama eight years ago and four years ago, Hillary Clinton did not get the support and it translated into a coattail effect, which is what cost 
Feingold the election. And then I go back to the data we just had here um, on the turnout. And so even though we had a 4,000 vote turnout greater here in Madison, when you have a 40,000 vote decline in Milwaukee from four years ago, what chance did Russ Feingold have? That Milwaukee dropped 200 from, get repeated, from 288 459,000 to 248,045. 40,000 drop. And as a, as a percentage, that's enormous. 40,000 out of 288,000. And how much of that was, do you think, caused by the voter, changing voter laws that you spoke to? I mean, There's no question that that was part of it. But it's so enormous. So it wasn't all? It's not, that's not all of it. Laid out a lot of criticism for the Democratic Party of Wisconsin well, today. But no, no, no. <laughs> I, but I'm just, I'm just curious. If they come to you and say, "What do you think we should do? How do we get this state back? How do we get viable assembly?" Is your message to them essentially run to the left, make a decision to run to the left? Not run to the left. Go to the left and embrace who you are. And if you want to see something absolutely spectacular, God, I love this toy I've got here. Um, in 1996, Paul Wellstone uh, was up for the battle of his life in, for re-election to the U.S. Senate from Minnesota. And in the middle of that summer, in the middle of that summer, Bill Clinton pulled uh, the rug out from underneath him as a progressive with so-called welfare reform. And Wellstone was in a horrible, horrible situation. I'm just guessing that this is uh, the video. I will not vote for their extreme cuts of Medicare, nursing home care, and education just to pay for a tax cut for the rich. That's plain wrong. I will stand up for Minnesota families and for what's right, no matter what kind of scary monster they send after. <laughs> this is just one of several ads that he did. He just looked right into the camera and he never backed off and he won re election. That's what Democrats have to do. I'm talking about being very clear, unequivocal, about the goal of a $15 minimum wage, being unequivocal and very clear about supporting labor unions, about being unequivocal and very clear about the unacceptability of NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Treaty being very clear and unequivocal on, on the spending of public money as an incentive for private investment that creates jobs. I mean, Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren, who don't have the national stage that Hillary Clinton has had, 
have articulated as well as anyone the history of the United States, the greatest periods of economic growth in this country, of private investment, of job creation, were always preceded by public investment in infrastructure and in human capacity, in education. Nothing, nothing serves the example better than the GI Bill. Nothing serves it better than uh, the National Defense Act, which built the interstate highway system, which opened up a majority of this country for economic development in the 1950s and 60s. Now, we can argue about environmentally whether it was sound, but it all goes back hundreds of years ago in terms of what we did again. It helped the robber barons by providing federal lands for the railroads, building the canals. But that's what led to private investment. And the same thing is true internationally. Following World War II, what were the two greatest companies to grow economically? It was the two companies that spent the greatest part of their gross national product on infrastructure and education. Germany and Japan. And they just crushed us in everything from electronics to, to, to uh, home appliances to automobiles, cell phones. So um, the Dane County and Madison are more politically isolated, it seems, than ever before from the rest of the state. And what, is that, what does this mean now that um, the federal government now is in Republican terms? I don't know very clear about that. The, if you want to talk about the future, all right, let's lay a couple things out. We generalize about the business community. There's the business community. We define them. We identify who they are. And we stereotype about who they are. Well, they're not a monolith. And there's one element of the business community that is very different than everybody else. So over here, we've got the entrepreneurs, the small business owners, um, the CEOs and CFOs of both local and, and national companies. And then over here, we've got the real estate developers. Real estate developers are very, very different than these other business leaders. Real estate developers know for them to succeed there has to be investment in infrastructure, in water, in streets, in roads, in communication systems, the Internet, wireless, high speed, moving goods and people. They know that. Donald Trump may be mistaken about a lot of things, but that's one thing that he understands. Now, to do that, to do that, you have to spend public money. Now, he's got a party that he's associated with that is committed to lowering taxes and not spending money on these things. So, here he is, all chummy with Paul Ryan yesterday on the news. I don't know what's going to happen over the next three or four months. I know they can agree 
on certain tax cuts. But how are they going to agree on Donald Trump's commitment to make America great again? You've got to build. You have to invest. So that sounds like a silver lining. I don't know. I don't know. Ran on a lot of issues that would suggest if he accomplishes them, it pulls the Republican Party towards the center for the first time in quite a long time. But will Speaker Ryan let him do that? What, what, what I see happening, if he is successful, and this is so contradictory to the modern day Republican Party, the party of Sarah Palin, is he is going to end up walking in the shoes of Teddy Roosevelt. And taking the Republican Party back to being a populist party. What would that mean for Democrats if they don't do the same thing? If they don't win that message for people? Well, it could make the Democrats irrelevant, or it could make them very key players in putting together legislative majorities. Because there's certainly nothing near a majority in either House of the Congress within the Republican Party. And I just can't see Paul Ryan signing on to spending billions of dollars to fix this this country. But Trump repeated it this week. He wants to fix the cities. I don't want to make it uh, we, much longer. Exactly. We have a staff meeting. They can wait. But um, is Trump's habit of publicly calling people out, shaming them, could that work to his advantage with somebody like Speaker Ryan, who if he tries to get in his way, Trump's going to bully him and try to shame him and get his supporters tweeting at him? And I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the, 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 all of these are, are elements... Uh, that, that we can't calculate. We, we've never seen this before. We have never seen a president get elected, let alone a mandate, who is in such conflict with the basic principles of his own party. There are a lot of conservative leaders who totally agree with you. That's why, that's why there's the never Trump, you know, Charlie Sykes and Jerry Bader and all these guys in southeastern right. Wisconsin right. who will not support Trump because they don't see him as a conservative. Correct. You kind of agree he's really not a conservative in that regard. He can't be, by the very definition, at least on economic issues, of what he did to build all his towers. I switch gears quickly and sure. ask a question about the budget. Oh, about the city. <laughs> sure, go ahead. All right, thank you so much. Um, so I saw that you didn't offer an amendment to the Midtown Police Station. Does, is that a signal that you've acquiesced to the city council's um, schedule on this? It or? depends on how the budget turns out. Um, if certain things are done with this budget that... Uh, further worsens the situation, I will veto it. And the presence of the Midtown Station within that budget is part of it. On the other hand, um, 
if the rest of the budget is acceptable, uh, I'll accept that element of the budget. I have another question, if that's all right. Let me just add one thing before okay. I ask your next question. I will repeat what I've said before. The immaturity of certain council members in demanding this item in the budget when, by moving it to 2018, we only lose two to three months in terms of literally opening the doors, cutting the ribbon, is tragic. Now, you've had something else? Yeah. Um, regarding the public market, it looks like there are three amendments yes. that offer three separate courses the council could take. Right. I saw that you only supported one of them and were against the other yes. two. Could you explain the um, difference? Yes. Alderman Palm's amendment is one that simply says the obvious. We don't commit public money for the public market until we know all of the costs, all of the design issues, all of the structural issues, which, frankly, ought to be the responsible standard we use in the expenditure of all of our capital dollars. The other two uh, uh, amendments are basically coming from what I call the Tea Party element in the City Council, that element uh, that is simply bent on stopping any progress, and fortunately we haven't had a lot of members of the council like that. Otherwise, there would be no Civic Center, no Overture, no State Street Mall, no uh, Monona Terrace, and all of the private investment that followed that. federal funding was a condition for one of them because it seems like unless the Let me tell you where that came from. Right. We see two possibilities. Possibilities of additional funding for the market. One is the state of Wisconsin because we've seen in other states like New York and Massachusetts state participation in underwriting it. And second is a possibility from the federal government. So several years ago when we were developing possible models for financing, we offered up those as possibilities. We never said, we never said that those were absolute conditions to make this project work. Now, bent on killing the project but not taking responsibility for it, we've got several members of the city council who want to, for political reasons, seem to give part of the city uh, the impression that they're supportive of the market, but what they're doing is creating a condition prematurely that uh, may kill the project. We may find other mechanisms, and even if the city has to take on some additional uh, part of the cost, the project can still work. So it's, it's, it's a sneaky way of, uh, of, of trying to be on both sides of a line where they don't want the public to know that they're really bent on killing the project, but at the same time, um, their their uh, own agenda is gotten in the way. I can keep going. 
Well, I'm, I'm just. Sorry, it sounds good. <laughs> um, I think I'll limit myself to just one more. Um, so I saw that there's an elimination of all the projects funded by TIF in the State Street area. Right. Um, can you explain really the reasoning behind that? I cannot. Uh, you should talk to Alderman Verveer. Um, he is the one most responsible for the development of the project goals. And um, I, I don't know if Alderwoman Eskridge has got something personally out for him. Um, but again, going back to something we were discussing in regards to the national situation, here we've got some available opportunities to make more public investment that spurs on private investment. I mean, let's be clear about this. There were two things that led to all of the massive construction we've seen downtown in the last five years. One was the private sector finally seeing the city adopting the zoning code rewrite in the downtown plan. That uh, released that pent-up energy to build. But the other was the public investment and all the things that make downtown so attractive. Uh, that's why we've got far more investment than most other cities. Anything else? That was fun. Yeah. You mentioned that politicians have to keep their promises. It seemed like Trump has pivoted a little bit to not focusing on the wall and all He's got some issues on those. I mean, is he, within four years from now, going to have failed to deliver on the wall, failed to deliver on some of the uh, misogynist, racist part of the agenda? Um, and with these other dilemmas with the, his fellow Republicans, he may be in big trouble uh, for re-election in, in 2020. I think he's going to – here's one place where I won't answer. I don't know, but I'll make a prediction. A year or two from now, he's going to announce that he's got concessions from the Mexican government because of his threat of the wall, and therefore he's going to announce and tell us all that the wall is no longer needed. That's, that's my one prediction. Um, percentage on turnout, Madison was 79%, virtually the same as it was four years ago when it was 89. It was 79 a fraction. Milwaukee dropped from 87% to 75%. Thank you. Thank you. Come on for us, too.